Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to Justice a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. As the year draws to a close and thoughts often turn to the future and new beginnings or career paths, I decided to chat to Dr Simon Fox, who is head of law at Solent University and also associate professor of criminal justice and legal education, about what it means to actually study criminology. I myself am quite biased as I love this subject, and have not one but two degrees in criminology. So I thought it would be useful to dive deeper into what this subject really is, what it's about, and where it may lead someone who chooses to study it. My name is Dr. Simon Fox, an Associate Professor in Criminal Justice and Legal Education at uh, Solent University on the South Coast over here in Southampton. And I have a 25-year history in uh, criminology, and before that in, in law and in policing. So what I want to do today is to try and get to the bottom of and explore a little bit more about criminology, what it really is as a subject, how it came about. So should we start with kind of when did it emerge on the scene as an academic study? Because I know that when I studied it as an undergraduate probably 20, 22 years ago, there weren't very many universities that offered it, actually. And it was more of a tagged on to sociology. So, so when did it appear on the scene? Yes, yeah, and I like the, I like to hear the, the view it was tagged on to sociology because I'm still having this this debate um, at um, at my university, which is Southern University, and other universities as to wh- wh- where does criminology fit, and it, it always entertains me because you're absolutely right. Uh, is it within a sort of um, psychology department? Is it a sociology department? Um, is it law? And I suppose my answer to that is quite simply, well, it can be in any of those. There's a tradition, I suppose, in the more traditional universities, put it that way, what we call the Russell Group ones, you might find that it's more attached to law. And then the post um, sort of 1994-5 universities, you might find it more in the sort of sociological, psychological aspect. For me, criminology, its history, its background really just came about from, um, and don't worry, I'm not going to give you a lecture here about um, you know, it, it, its history and beginnings. But if you look at it, it, it very much started off from people look, uh, such as um, Cesare Lombroso looking at how and why on earth uh, do we have these people who are um, not conforming, who are actually then breaking these things that we call laws. 
um, and they then try and understand it. And then you've got some sort of form of um, biology coming in and, and you know, perhaps they're looking at um, phrenology and the, the, the bumps that are over people's heads and faces and things like that, trying to work out a type which could be identified and that's a criminal, etc. So you've got all that going on. So have a look at the, the history of, of criminology by all means. But you're going to find essentially that criminology is made up of law, sociology, psychology. But then, and this is what I always say to, to, to students or anybody who's interested in criminology, actually criminology, the, the study of crime, is going to deploy anything and everything it can in order to try and understand the elements of, well, what is crime? Why do people commit crime? Why are people victims of crime? Even down to, you know, um, why are certain locations more prone to crime? What can we do to prevent it? Is there any possibility of rehabilitation? Are you born a criminal? Can you be <clears throat> nurtured into a criminal? Can you be nurtured out of being a, a, a criminal? Victimology, you know, the, the, the element of someone being a, a victim. This is always an area that has fascinated me as well because essentially people have sometimes been a bit too, too coy or too scared of actually looking at why are people victims? Because what needs to be clearly understood is that we're never going to be saying, well, hope, I certainly never would, and I'm pretty certain all my colleagues would never say, you are complicit in your own victimology, I, it's your fault. But what we should be doing is looking at, well, what are the conditions? What are the, the, the processes? What are the structures that have actually led to you becoming a victim? And that, again, that is key. I suppose another area that uh, is quite contemporary at the moment, but has always been there. And it's something I've always started with whenever I go in and I talk at, um, at schools or uh, at colleges about why should, should you be studying criminology? And I say, listen, do you realise, and, and, and I'm sure, Edwina, you know a lot about this, uh, look at the current prison population. Look at how many of that population are male compared to female. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. Um, you know, we're looking at, um, again, you probably have a better idea than my, me at the moment, a, a prison population of what, 80, 87,000, something like that? Yeah, roughly sits around sort of 85, 87, but it might be lower at the moment. But yeah. And again, that, that, that figure intrigues me. So how is it we're managing to maintain that consistent figure? But anyway, that's another story. Um, and then out of that, what is the current prison population who are female? And um, again, I suppose we're looking at how much, Edwina? Just under 4,000. So if we're looking at that, what on earth uh, are, the, are the male counterparts doing? Um, and again, we can get, get into research and debates over, is it because they are more sort of criminally orientated? Is it because the society itself and the social processes and structures have actually recognised them more as criminals? Um, you know, contentiously, and I'm only saying this absolutely with tongue in cheek here, is it something to do with uh, women are, are more astute and able to get away with crime? You know, it, it, all these things are possibilities. And I suppose that is absolutely what fascinates me about criminology. If I get, um, you know, I, I've been now going in, in the area of criminology, and I came from law, by the way, from, from my sort of original discipline. If I ever get sort of perhaps bored with a particular area, so for example, um, I have a history of looking at human rights, um, which is fascinating, um, I can then think to myself, right, okay, I'm now going to be looking at something else. I'm actually going to be looking at 
list to have a total change, um, an environmental factor. Why are certain environments more prone to, to crime than others? And then start looking at, at that. It's, it's fascinating. And it seems to me, having done two degrees now in criminology, that there's um, probably like other subjects, I don't know, because I haven't studied other subjects, but there's no real hard and fast facts in a way, is there? It's sort of, as one of my assignments was, um, a compendium of approaches. You know, it's lots of opinions, isn't it? And then you can say, well, this is the trend in England, but that won't be the trend in India. You, you've got a lot there. You've got comparative criminology where I could say to you, right, it would be lovely if I was able to say, listen, we've got a, a process or a practice over here about crime prevention that works, let's say, for example, in England. Um, so hang on a minute. Over in the United States, why don't you use the same same process? Um, as a way of preventing crime? Well, the answer is, I'm afraid, it's never going to be that simple because you're going to find that um, the, the environment, the, the population, the people um, is going to be different. The culture is going to be different. And so that's why sometimes when we come up with a view of, hey, it's simple, all we need to do is if we see something working over here, we can actually deploy it over there. It might not necessarily work. And, and that's certainly true the more you then look on an international context. So then some people will say, well, Simon, why bother with comparative criminology at all? And I say, well, the moment you accept that you need to then have a more of astute kind of consideration of the, I suppose, transference of that idea, um, it, there's still something to be had here with actually then trying to work out if it's going to work in that kind of environment. But don't forget, all of our, if you wish to use this term, societies are the product of our own history, our own sovereignty, our own environments, our own cultures. And then, of course, it gets even more complicated when we start thinking about the influence of various other sort of um, cultures all coming together, religious understandings as well. Everyone sort of trying to work together and, and basically get on. And in fact, there are theories that talk about this kind of aspect. And actually, a lot of crime is born out of this sort of social transition and, and how things actually change. And it's, it's interesting you saying about um, criminology and there being lots of ideas as to how it is, you know, it occurs and how, how crime occurs. And you're absolutely right. It would be lovely if I could just come out and say, listen, I've got a really good theory. This is why people commit crime. Yeah. And there are ones, you know, you can look at, um, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to sort of quote some and please anybody listening to this, you can have a look at these up. You've got, you know, things like anemies, social dissonance, strain theory. You've got social bond theories, absolutely fascinating. Routine activity theories. There are so many labeling theories, lots and lots and lots of these theories. But guess what? They are all make absolute logical sense. They have all been shown through their, their research um, foundations to actually, yeah, they, they, they do seem to actually explain, but they're very context specific. And what I would suggest to you is that if ever you want to say, right, I want to know how and why that person has committed the crime or how to stop crime, good luck. Because essentially it is a, it's like a matrices of all sorts of different theoretical possibilities. Yeah. And then of course, yeah. one person might have quite a few theories overlaid on their particular circumstance and background, right? Absolutely. And I, I've, I've had some involvement in considering um, 
after people have been convicted and, and um, gone into in, you know, um, some form of uh, incarceration, then at what point is it um, uh, appropriate to have them released? And then we look at how should they be monitored? Now, in that, you have this two-factor aspect, which is you have what is known as a, a passive risk assessment and an active risk assessment. So a passive one would be looking at, well, okay, um, how old are they, even down to you know, what sex are they, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those kind of things that haven't really changed over time. And from that, believe it or not, you then start having a, a view as to the likelihood of them you know, uh, committing a crime. But then you also have to look at the active factors so that then once they're on release, what are they doing? Where should they go? How should they act? You know, all those different things, again, might well then lead to them perhaps um, at least being, I'm, I'm using this word really quite loosely, tempted to then commit crime themselves. So you're, you're, you're right. It's, it, it's fascinating to me because you've got active and passive risk assessments going on, and, and these go on today, which are often conducted in, in, by various different agencies. And where do they get that understanding from? Well, they get it from normally some of these theories, but not all of these theories that you, know, you will learn if you go off and you study criminology. And that, that, that absolutely fascinates me. And the other thing I would say is, if I really, really want to blow people's minds, I say, right, so these are all the theories as to uh, why people might suddenly you know, depart from this being a, a lovely social animal of, of where we all have this perhaps you would expect normal view that we're not going to commit crime because we all want to get on with each other. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of like a social structural theory. Okay, that's great. But hang on a minute. Let's just stop for a minute and just say to ourselves, what is it out there that actually prevents somebody from committing a crime? And by that, I mean, perhaps we should actually turn this on his head and say, we all actually want to commit crime. So what are the factors that prevent us from stopping it? And that's why, again, sometimes I look at social bond theory and, and I know that's something, again, that's of very much of trend and it's used by a lot of agencies because what they're look, looking at there are, well, what are the systems, processes, associations that actually tie someone uh, to um, believing in their community and believing in um, their, their, their social environment that will actually stop them from committing a crime? And, of course, that makes logical sense and, and we agree with that because... And the more you're invested in something, possibly the less likely you are to actually then commit that crime. But then I also take it even further. I say, that's fine. That seems logical, doesn't it? And everyone says, says yes. And I introduce them to this thing called um, rational choice theory as well. You know, that's pretty basic where I say, well, you know, if you are uh, wishing to commit a crime, let's say, for example, you wish to commit a, a mugging or somebody, a robbery, um, you would look at the, your potential targets and you'll think to yourself, right, rationally, I can see that that person is bigger than me, so I'm not going to attack them. OK, so that lends itself to victimology. Fascinating. Um, fine. OK, but that's rational choice. I said, but what about if we now go down a more psychological route and actually say that person, and again, I'm using this term very loosely, is not rational? Yeah, or they were jumped on and attacked from behind and you turn around and maybe punch someone and end up accidentally sort of, you know, kill a blow by accident. Um, you certainly wouldn't be like, oh, well, that was a rational choice. It was a completely irrational and completely terrifying. What I tend to do at that point is I go back to my, my, my nurturing home, which is the law. And I would then say, fine, OK, let's if, if that were the circumstance, then could you um, uh, would you what would you do? So you could claim self-defense, for example. But then we understand that, again, this is concept of reasonableness. So if someone, for example, Irina did go to monkey, you turn around and hit them uh, and they unfortunately then die. Um, well, 
there is this thing called the thin skull rule. You have to take your victims, you find them. Perhaps you hit them with such force uh, and they had a, a particularly thin skull that they then died from that. Well, okay, very unfortunate for them. Potentially, yes, uh, you would be in a lot of trouble, but then you would hope that um, a jury certainly would then see that as a reasonable use of force, and, and that's how it was. If, however, you were to get into an argument with somebody um, and push them, and they fall backwards, bang their head on the curb, um, and perhaps a normal skull con uh, construction would actually be such that they would be fine, but they didn't have a normal skull construction and actually it was thin, uh, and they were to die from that injury, you would still be in a lot of trouble. You, yeah, you I remember working with um, male lifers in prison, and actually most of the male lifers that I was working with were in for exactly that. Um, yeah. You know, some some not so much, but... There was a, a large majority who it was exactly that situation. It wasn't necessarily going out with a knife and sort of, you know, hunting down victims sort of murders. It was um, that really terrible set of circumstances that led to something that really shouldn't have happened. And no one went out with a premeditated idea that something like that was going to happen. I absolutely agree because I... I um... Back, back in back in my history, I uh, when I was doing my 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 masters, I had a really fantastic opportunity to go in and talk to um, some people who were in in Wormwood Scrubs, and I had exactly the same thought. The majority of people, I mean, obviously it could have been perhaps constructed in that I was seeing the people of of, of um, who committed certain types of crimes in certain types of ways, but I can remember thinking to myself, my goodness, actually, I just see that you have just made the wrong decision or perhaps you reacted in a certain way, um, which then caused you to cause that level of harm and now you are where you are. Um, and that, for me, almost kept me up at night because I'm thinking, goodness, just think of it. It's that split-second decision that then has led to them you know, being in prison. But then, of course, I then look at it even more deeply and I think, so that split-second decision... Where did that come from? How how did that develop in that person? Is it something that, you know, through socialization, um, they have uh, thought that that is a, a conditioned response that they need to do? Um, or is it a situation where, um, you know, and this is also fascinating at the moment, bio biologically speaking, um, are there people who are perhaps uh, prone to act in certain ways because it's in their, their biological makeup, you know, um, propensity perhaps to have a inability to quite uh, empathize or understand um who knows who knows and again fascinating yeah and i suppose then the difficulty comes if it's so difficult to work out why people do what they do and then you sort of move further down the chain to the sort of um criminal justice response to why people do what they do how are we ever going to get that right if we can never work out why people do what they do Correct. Putting to one side the whole element of, of, of investigating crime, which is another area of criminology, by the way, but um, which fascinates me and how the police should be dealing with it and how then the, the our own Crown Prosecution Service or indeed, if you're speaking on an international front, uh, the other prosecution services deal with it. We're then also left with the view, OK, we've now identified, prosecuted and now convicted this person of this crime. Now what do we do with them? And this is a whole field of, 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 as you know very well, penology, where we say, well, OK, um, do we put them in prison because we're saying um, you have done a wrong, so we just want to make sure that, therefore, you understand that it's wrong, so we're going to make that point by making you essentially suffer 
okay, to punish you, punishment theory. Are we then going to then progress from that initial punishment to then into some form of rehabilitation? Because it would be lovely and logical again if people went into uh, prison and then came out not wanting to go there and not wanting to commit that crime. But sometimes the tendency seems to be people uh, wish not to go back into, I'm, I'm using this word again, prison or incarceration, because they're scared about going into prison. Um, is that necessarily an effective way? Um, and we can talk for quite some time. And again, another fascinating debate is, is for example, the death penalty. Um, will people go out uh, where there is a, a jurisdiction that has the death penalty and murder somebody thinking, I'm actually um, not going to now shoot this person and kill them because I'm so scared that I'm actually going to myself um, then be uh, put in the electric chair. Um, or are they thinking, okay, I understand that, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to plan so well that I'm going to get away with it. Or are they put into a circumstance where actually, again, guess what? It happens so, so, so quickly um, that they don't think about that at all. So does, therefore, the death penalty work as a form of uh, prevention? Um, again, it's another debate. Um, it would be lovely if we could rehabilitate. It would be lovely if we could actually spend the time with these people in prison, think of them as individuals, and give them an individual package where we actually say, right, we've now analysed you, we've looked at sort of the theoretical perspectives as to why you have a propensity to commit crime, why you committed this crime, we've got you to accept it. We can go through all sorts of different sort of rehabilitative kind of um, processes with them. And then they then leave and they understand that actually, no, similar circumstance happens again, I won't react like that. Or indeed, actually, I don't want to engage in that type of activity. Or indeed, I don't want to now associate with those types of people so that I then get into some sort of um, wish to actually, uh, through peer pressure perhaps, also do this type of thing. The problem and concern, though, that is always going to be there is how much will that cost? How much would it cost for us to individually give a bespoke um, rehabilitation package to that particular person? OK, so maybe we can't do that, but maybe we can pick out um, rehabilitation that actually might work for a greater group. Fine. So maybe we should do that. And then, of course, and this is where, unfortunately, then uh, politics will get involved. Because then it's the, the view of, so hang on a minute, how much are we spending uh, in, in, in prisons at the moment? How much are we spending on rehabilitation or, or diversionary tactics? And how much are we spending on education or, or healthcare? Um, where, where should the balance be? And um, I, I like to, and I, in fact, you know, I was telling you earlier how I wish to be apolitical in many of the things, but I would say to you, it seems logical to me that if you are on a political agenda, you might be going for a populist kind of view i.e. if it's unpopular to actually be seen to be giving money to people who have committed a crime, don't do it. Give it elsewhere. And I think that is particularly something that um, anybody who's interested in penology and um, preventing this repeat offending or recidivism, as we call it, that is something that we need to be very aware of. And of course, yes. you can compare it, though, with other Again, I'm going to use this word cultures. If you go over to some of the more sort of um, you know, Nordic states or um, other jurisdictions, they have a different view. They have a different view. But again, that's from their history and their, their political makeup. And certainly from my point of view, having been sort of 
you know, you can't take politics out of criminal justice, actually, can you? And you might be left, right, sort of agnostic about the whole thing, apolitical, but you can't bring yourself out of it, really, because as you say, a lot of it is throwing red meat to the sort of um, to the voters and it lock them up, throw away the key. So, of course, actually, in my opinion, politics really drives a great dysfunction and does us a huge disservice, really. Um, and I don't know about you, but because I'm such a geek, I often spend my... Uh, quiet moments designing my own justice system from the very start in the community and sort of what I think should be there in my sort of utopian land and then what would the responses be at every single step of the way and if it did get up to court what would that court look like does it still need to be a gladiatorial sort of ancient thing where everyone's dressed in wigs if you're in the crown court and robes and they're speaking a different language and um, you know as much as that is beautiful and wonderful to watch in many ways. It's heartbreaking and soul-destroying at the same time. And then, of course, if someone sends us to prison, it's take them down and they sort of almost go through a trapdoor in some places. And then off they go into the bowels of the court and disappear off into some unknown prison. And God knows when they're going to come out the other end, spat back out into society, usually not in a very good way. Um, so I don't know. Are you a geek like that? Do you sort of try and um, design I'm, your own? I'm an absolute geek like that. But my design, I still haven't come up with an effective one, because if I could start from the very beginning, and by that, I mean, I'm looking at now some sort of um, literally we've just progressed from uh, the Neanderthal to the to the homo sapien kind of, you know, upright sort of movement. Um Brilliant. And we can then start saying, fine, we're now organizing ourselves into a a community here where we understand, wouldn't it be great if rather than perhaps living in our own little pockets of families or as individuals, that we all come together because then we can actually say, right, uh, you over there, Ugg, you're going to be now responsible for for farming and you over there, um, whoever I'm going to call you, you're going to be responsible for, for buildings. And actually, now we were doing this, we understand that in order for you folks to be getting on with your particular roles and jobs, we need to have some sort of rules so that we can actually now share our resources. And then the moment you start doing that, that's then going to create potential for certainly negotiation, if not conflict, because people will say, well, I need slightly more, I need slightly less. Um, That person over there, they're not doing quite as much activity as me because of the nature of their role. So should they get so much food? So you're going to then have to have sort of rules which actually need to exist. And the moment you have rules, you're then going to have to have some form of process to actually enforce those rules. And that's when you would then have perhaps people who would be um, the the guards. Um, Dare I use the word police who actually would be there to enforce it. But then also you need a, a fair or for the community, it's perception of fair process, where if somebody is caught to infringe that particular uh, rule, that then they must actually be um, brought in front of a a tribunal, a a group of people who you all accept or are learned or or, or, um, um, of of notoriety in your community, who can then make a decision as to what then happens to that person. You know, um, and then... I dare I say it, there are various different sanctions. The simplest and the one I absolutely do not advocate sanction would be, well, we get rid of them. Either we eject them from our our small community and they can go out and they'll wander around in in sort of, you know, the the wastelands or we we kill them. Um, And, and, you know, again, that has happened in in, in our history. Um, Or uh, do we then try and create a situation where they don't want to do that again and we then put them back into society. 
If you're doing that, then do you go down the punishment route? Do you go down a some sort of instruction route? Um, how can you do that? Um, and also there needs to be, and I, I can always remember one of my first jobs was working in a, a solicitor's firm quite local to where I am. And I suppose I came in with all these glorious theories of um, rehabilitation, et cetera, et cetera. But I always remember that the, the, the partner there said, well, Simon, you do realize that though it's also there to punish. And, and that, again, kind of made me go, oh, okay, um, maybe, I suppose there's something here. Um, and again, that's, that's why I'm interested. So we're not only looking at theories of crime, we're also looking at theories of punishment. And that, that's another key area in penology. Isn't that the loss of liberty, full stop? And again, if you go to, I, I had a fantastic time for, for all sorts of many reasons when I was on a, an Erasmus exchange student and I went over to Holland and I went to um, 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 Groningen. And I'm sorry, I know I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. But anyway, a lovely university, lovely environment. And I visited some of their prisons and they absolutely have that. They say, hey, you know, um, we're, 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 we're Dutch, we're in Holland. We're just taking their liberty. And uh, otherwise, you know, um, it, it, it's fine here. And, and they had tennis courts, swimming pools. They had lovely environments. And I just literally come from, because I was doing a comparative uh, analysis, from, from the Worm and Scrubs at that time. And that was in the 1980s. You can imagine the contrast that I saw. So obviously people will be balking sort of listening to that. Um, and I've also been to prisons in Norway um, and had my own sort of self challenged by because um, you can't help it when you're sort of from uh, you've seen the prisons in England and Wales and you sort of think, gosh, this really is very nice. Is this OK? Um, but as you say, it officers will say, well, it's the loss of liberty, full stop. And it's a really interesting concept. And actually, we forget that prisons are a place of employment. People should come to their work place and be able to do their work safely. They should not have to worry about escalating sort of violence and violent um in violent environments and you know it's it's just a really interesting thing to think about you know the assaults and the suicides and self-harm uh, re-offending rates are much lower out there aren't they and people always say well you can't compare and it's like well we do compare and it, yeah. we have to compare and don't get me wrong again i'm i'm literally and I, I do this sometimes uh in, in in your class now that i still teach and i i do enjoy it i deliberately come up with contentious kind of different perspectives and so often i'll be saying to particularly after we spent some time explaining the 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 basic practicality behind um you know preventing recidivism through rehabilitation i then say but hang on a minute what about punishment um, and then I try and again to get people to think about that and compare and contrast. So absolutely fascinating. But one of the things you just mentioned there absolutely is correct. And that is um, we have people who are working in these uh, prison environments. What about what about let's just use the term their rights? What about their their safety? What about our expectation of them? Um, and we have high expectations. Um, as, as a society, I would suggest I do. I expect them to work in a certain way. I expect them not only to to keep them there. Um, I also expect them to treat people uh, ethically. I expect them to treat people well, looking after their welfare. I would be absolutely hopeful that they are engaging in some form of training so they know how to undertake rehabilitation of those people and not just, you know, turning a key in a lock. Um, and that's my expectation. But then if you think about it, we have an awful lot of expectation of those people working in public service. And we always will. Um, a classic one, I'm sorry, I'm just deliberately going to lead you into this one because you know it's somewhere that's close to my heart, and it's policing. 
Um, we spec a huge amount of our police um, and they are privy to huge amounts of, of criticism. But understandably, we have a situation where, again, as a, as a society, uh, and particularly in, in uh, the United Kingdom, we have this thing called policing by consent. And what that basically is, is an informal kind of social contract where we said, right, I tell you what, we're going to now make you folks, the people who we appoint, uh, in charge of coercive control over us. OK, you can tell us what to do. However, um, we accept that only on the condition that you actually police us in the way that we wish to be policed. OK, and that's that's the element of policing by consent. Um, and of course, the problem comes when who actually decides that? Who actually decides um, how you wish to be policed? Is it based upon the general populist view? Um, what about those who slightly disagree? And of course, that, that's the nonsense of it, because essentially, uh, of course, you're going to disagree if you're going to be uh, subject to the coercive control of, the, of a police officer at that time. The very essence of of being uh, a criminal, uh, to use this term, is to deviate from from a, a social, if you like to call it norm, a, to be a deviant. Um, so you've got all this going on. But it absolutely fascinates me because the police are in a very, very interesting position, because what happens there is that for, for our, our jurisdiction, to use that term, what we must be expecting is for the police to be responsive in how they police to both local and national concerns and priorities, but also, believe it or not, and this is enshrined in ex-party Blackburn, etc., etc., they need to be apolitical in how they do it, okay? Because we don't want, the last thing we want are the police to be political animals saying, right, yeah, we're card-carrying members of this particular political ideology or thought. Because the next thing we have to say is, well, if you want to get, have a look at how that works out for you, look at um, Germany during the 1930s and then what happened there. It's, it's something we have to be very, very careful. So the police must be apolitical. But then, of course, and again, I am a criminologist and I, you know, I, I have colleagues who've written in this area, are they truly apolitical? And then they talk about the minor strikes and various other things sort of coming into it. And of course, we've got various different debates there. But the theory is the police must be apolitical in how they do it, but they must be responsive to uh, both local and national uh, processes in, in, in what they are going to be doing and how they prioritise their role. So this is why I'm also fascinated by the roles of the police and crime commissioners. You just um, took the thought right out of my yeah, mind. Yeah. And I was thinking, how can they be apolitical when actually now there's a police and crime commissioner who is a political appointment who then is, right. sets the agenda for the police who should not be political? So the way in theory, according to, to what I feel, but I'm, I'm not the only person on this, it's not my theory, um, is that, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So you've got the police and crime commissioner who should be very much switched into the, the local, regional uh, concerns and will very much push that particular sort of agenda. They will say things right. we, we need you to get out and, and because we've noticed that in this particular area there's a high rate of uh, drug-related crime. Sort that out. So that becomes then the, the list of priorities and indeed they actually have financial uh, influence as to you know, the, the budget that can be given along with sort of the, the Home Secretary for the National Concerns. But strangely enough still uh, we do have this aspect of the chief constable or the commissioner, if it's the Metropolitan Police, in theory, can turn around and say, well, actually, I have overall operational control. So you can, by all means, give me those priority areas. But how I'm going to do it? 
that's, that's for me to decide, thank you very much. Now, of course, this then gets very entertaining when then we also consider, well, hang on a minute, can there a police and crime commissioner actually fire, sack a, a chief constable? Ooh, I'm not too sure about that. And again, uh, again, fascinating. Have a look at that. So this is called uh, what's known as the, as the tripartite uh, sort of uh, policing system or, or structure. And it's trying to achieve this balance, which is very intriguing to me of, of how you have yeah, the police need to be representative of the people, but equally they need to be apolitical in how they do it. Going back down to the view that often the police will be there and they will be forming that, and I'm going to use this term, that thin blue line between one person's or, or group of people's rights on this side and another people's group of rights on that side. And they are there to make sure, essentially, I suppose, fair play in the law is being respected in how they're doing it. And that lends us back to one of the, the loves of my life, and that is human rights. Again, absolutely intrigues me because we all know that we should have human rights. Perhaps the, the majority of us think that. But OK, what are they? Who says what is a human right? And again, we're back to this sort of more majoritarian kind of understanding and view. Uh, and what about those who are in the minority? But again, it's trying to achieve that balance, trying to set a minimum standard of, of conduct beneath which we're saying, no, 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 you can't go beneath that. And that's why we have the Human Rights Act 1998 in our country, and obviously it's ratified uh, in, in the rest of Europe as well. But again, intriguingly, um, dare I say, look at internationally and look at abroad. Look at perhaps the, um, the, I know they have their Bill of Rights in the United States, but look at, you know, what they have. Do they have a Human Rights Act, for example? Go off and find out. Um, and then look at how we will have other countries and other jurisdictions and what their history and what they currently are doing. And you think, well, OK, fine, we're OK in this country because we're quite sort of insulated. Good for us. Well, that kind of works until then we get into the, another fascinating area for me. And that is this element of transnational, if you like, international crime. And OK, our police now need to actually prevent crime and investigate crime that is being committed by people who aren't necessar necessarily nationals of the United Kingdom. And actually, we've got this now gross concern of um, organized crime, let alone terrorism, where they will be going to many different jurisdictions. And if you think about it, if I was uh, this way inclined and I somehow, for whatever reason, wished to run an international um, organized crime syndicate or gang, I would be trying to work out where the more permissive laws are or where the fallibilities in their investigative processes are. In the meantime... I would also be thinking, OK, I'm going to operate in those countries because they are not perhaps so well established in their policing investigatory powers or perhaps their laws are more permissive. OK, but in the meantime, we've got a situation where you would hope that our police services of each country would be talking to each other to help each other to deal with this international aspect of crime that crosses all borders. But of course, then we get into the effect of sovereignty and we get into the, the effects of us saying, well, hang on a minute. How's that going to work? Um, so we're going to ask for a, uh, a French gendarme to, to come into our country to arrest somebody. In, uh, no, I don't like the sound of that. Are we going to set up an international policing organization? And some people say, hey, that's what Interpol is about. No, it's not. Interpol is there to, to assist in the liaison, et cetera, et cetera, between um, police services. So how on earth are we going to deal with this element of international crime as be one of the things. And then, of course, this is before I even get started on this lovely thing, which is known as cybercrime.
Yeah, I was going to mention that and the sort of borderless crime and technology moving on so fast and the perpetrators of certain crimes in cyberspace, it seems sort of light years ahead of how police can ever sort of get there and then receive the training and then the resources. And um, But I just want to sort of bring us back quickly to the academic study of criminology. And if there's any students listening and thinking, well, you know, what kind of careers can I go into if I study this? <laughs> what, what we've discovered is intensely complicated, <laughs> <laughs> intensely complicated uh, subject. What sort of careers does criminology help with? Do you know... Um... I suppose, gosh, now, maybe four or five years ago, I was intrigued by this because I knew that um, graduates, classically, were, were all going into um, employment, graduate employment, uh, relatively quickly. Uh, those who studied criminology, I was saying, well, where are they going? What are they doing? They can't all become police officers, for heaven's sake, um, particularly back then because, you know, we had the cuts in the policing. But what they were doing is that they were going off and they were going off working predominantly for these public agencies, uh, such as uh, offender management, such as um, the Home Office. Because if you think about it, everything I've, we've just been talking about here today, all these different elements and how it all comes in and informs our understanding of criminology. These are also pertinent to per certain types of career roles that are actually out there. So you've got that going on. But then you've also got then the private industries. We have quite a few of our um, our students who have actually gone into, for example, business or banking. And then uh, it, criminology is a good, strong degree. Yeah, it's a lovely degree. But then what they find is that they're soon then being streamed into um, anti-corruption or anti-fraud uh, or anti, you know things like that. So again, that, that seems to work out very well. Another area which is absolutely uh, very much now growing is what I'm calling also the third sector. Uh, a lot of the non-profit agencies, a lot of the charities, again, they're, they're crying out for this kind of level of, of knowledge and understanding. Um, and the final thing I would say is that a lot of people now um, are coming in and, and taking um, a further qualification in criminology because perhaps they maybe they're in um, the probation service or maybe in the police service. And actually, they want to have a, a further, deeper understanding of, of why. Um, why are these people who we're currently dealing with who were called criminals actually acting that way? And perhaps they haven't got a problem, a, a criminology degree, so they want to learn more. Yeah. And I guess if someone gets goes on to get masters, does that mean they can jump up the pay bands? Because actually anyone listening will be like, great, yes, I want an interesting job. But I also, you know, a prison officer gets paid, what, £23,000 a year when they sort of first join the service. So that's not really going to help with a huge amount, some people might think. Um, so yes, would you encourage people to then go on to do the master's so that they can jump up the sort of levels within a service or does it not quite work like that? Well, again, it would depend upon the um, the career and professional development of, of that particular organisation. But absolutely, I've, I've seen that and, and I've seen uh, how that works for, for all sorts of the different sort of public agencies. There is another thing though, um, and shock horror, I know um, at the moment, and, and you know, I'm particularly looking at how uh, graduates at um, university, both undergraduate and postgraduate, how they then end up and we get them really prepared for, for going out and getting jobs um, of a graduate type. So I'm very much involved in that. But of course, it's not perhaps just this thing of I'm investing this amount of money and therefore expecting a, a career outcome, which is there um i would also say please 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 this goes back to the very beginning of what i've always believed in and that is 
Don't ever study any degree or undertake any form of learning unless you think you're interested in it. Because, and that's the other thing, um, I know I come from a somewhat older and crustier generation where things perhaps were slightly better and we used to get grants or, or whatever. But I, I went off and I ended up studying criminology because I was interested in it. And I still believe this to this day, that if you are first and foremost interested in this area, then you're going to do well in it because you'll want to read more. You'll want to understand further. You'll want to learn about all these different crazy theories about why people commit crime and how to prevent it and things like that. And then naturally you'll do well. And then naturally the better grade that you get, I would suggest will then lead itself to actually assisting you in, in, in sort of going down any particular career. So choose wisely, choose in this case criminology because you are interested in it. And then trust me, the, the opportunities will open out. And that's my only other piece of advice. Take every opportunity you can because that will then lend itself to, to your future uh, direction. Ultimately, for me, I, th I would suggest that criminology is an area to be studied because yes, it does have good vocational career prospects, but also study it because quite frankly, and I know I'm biased, look at the huge array of different interesting aspects to it that to me are absolutely compelling yeah i completely agree i'm also totally biased obviously i haven't done two degrees in criminology now but and i often think that actually it's relevant to anyone no matter what career you go into because it's fundamentally an understanding of human behavior and what makes people do the things that they do and sort of actually having a think about that um and i sort of hope one day um, in my lifetime that we actually might see a subject like this creeping into the curriculum in some way or another sort of earlier on um, certainly you'd have to do that appropriately given given the age groups um, but I think it's such such a fascinating rich study of human beings actually um, and it's not all about the crimes being committed is it because at the end of the day laws are made up by human beings and we break laws if we speed right um, so yeah it's uh, always the topic of a fascinating debate at dinner or... I, I can tell you, again, anecdotally, um, the amount of times I've, I've been in sort of social situations and it's the old thing of, what do you do? I'm a criminologist. And it's, ooh, and then you spend the next, in, well, probably the entire evening just talking about it. And sometimes... Trust me, you know, I love that. I absolutely love it. Other times, though, when, you know, you're feeling a bit tired and, and you want to have a quiet life, then um, I, I will say, um, I don't know, I, I used to say I was an international dancer, but I can't kind of get away with that now. Um, but uh, yeah, and you're right. I think ultimately, though, if you want to really start a debate, a debate, say to somebody, okay, think about it. Crime. Why have we defined something as a crime? Is it for uh, something that is... Um, for the social good, you know, and, and you already mentioned speeding or perhaps parking in double yellow lines and because speeding has become a more of an emotive kind of um, area now. And that works extremely well to stop people from speeding um, by actually advertising the effects that it has on everyone else. And it became more of a moral crime. Links and that's the other thing. To this episode then we have also have things that we instinctively below. see as a moral if you enjoyed type listening, of crime. Like we would murder. love it if you would don't, subscribe. Don't, please don't commit murder also because rate, we understand review, that that's a naughty all, thing to do. Where does episode. that come from? Justice and that, again, we go back into the, the psychology the and perhaps even the biology as to well, why do some people perhaps um, not even conceive of it as a, as a concern? And that's often where, I, again, I start with our own students. I say, right, so what's a crime? And they come out normally with some sort of legal definition or something. I say, so, okay, we've got prohibitive, we've got moral crime. So what is a moral crime? Who decides? Morality. 
and, and then we go back to that whole debate. So yeah, yeah, absolutely fascinating. So I think we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours about this, and years and yeah. years and years, actually. Well, Simon, thank you so much for all your wise words. And if any people are listening that sort of want to go into a career of criminology, I think it's safe to say that both of us couldn't um, sort of speak more highly of it as a as a subject. It's great fun. And yes, endless dinner time debates forevermore. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm I'm always very, very willing. Um, obviously, if I have had some deluge of, of people, then I might have to reconsider. But please, if anybody's interested in criminology, in law, um, please, by all means, you, you can contact me. Well, we'll certainly put a link to, to sort of where you are at the university. Fab. That'll be fine. Thank you. And, and I've enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.